As we move from Galatians chapter 3 to chapter 4, it's important to keep in mind something I just don't like to assume everyone knows, and that's the fact that in the original letter that Paul wrote to the Galatians, there weren't chapters and verse breaks. It's a letter. Chapter 3 flowed right into chapter 4. There are no chapters. It's one continuous thought. And this is free, free of charge. Uh, I'm just going to give you a little bit of information in case it interests you where verses and chapters came from. Um, Chapter divisions were first introduced into the scripture by an English archbishop by the name of Stephen Langton in the early part of the 13th century. Uh, This has nothing to do with the Bible study, just free information. And then in 1551, a Frenchman, Um, by the name of Robert Estine, added verse structure. Uh, Chapters and verses are clearly not inspired. Uh, God didn't add them. They're clearly added by men. And really the only point in adding them is to make it easier for you to read and to reference. So you're reading through a letter and you're getting tired one evening and you're like, yeah, I've got this cool little thing that fills into the page. It marks the page, but I don't know where I am in the page. It'd be hard to get back. I'm in verse 32. I can pause there. It's really a referencing tool if we're talking about a passage, talking about something God spoke to you. Uh, If there are no chapter and verse breaks, it would be like, yeah, go to Romans. And then you want to go to like, maybe like 35% of of the letter. And you're going to kind of look for maybe a third of the page down. That's hoping we all have the same Bible, right? So chapter and verse breaks are added. It's a benefit. It's not inspired. Chapter three, flows right into chapter four, thus the subject matter whereby we left our study, this outlaw church study last Sunday, is really where Paul's picking up as we get into chapter four. One continuous thought, building one thought upon another thought. So it's important as we get into chapter four to get a bit of a running start, set some context by going back into chapter three. If you join me, verse 24 Paul says, therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. I don't want to unpack the nitty gritty of that text. I would encourage you to listen back to the previous two studies uh, in this series because we went through that chapter uh, as best as we could to try to unpack it. But Paul is leaving us with this concept. He, he's talking about what it means to be uh, a son of Abraham. The fact that it's not works, it's not the law, it's faith. That Abraham believed, he placed his full confidence, his faith, and a promise. That promise being that God would provide a savior for sin. All of this happened, this agreement, this covenant took place before the law ever existed. We looked at in the chapter how faith in a savior had always been God's plan of redemption, of making humanity right. That the law was just given to accentuate a man's need for that savior. Larry and I were talking about the law last night and I've come to the conclusion that when I go play golf, I like the the, the gospel golf game. That par, that law, I'm not... I'm not abiding by that. Like that's an, that's an unholy standard. 
that if you play with me, it's clear I can never measure up to. As a matter of fact, that par, I can't measure up to it ever. So the only way I feel good about myself is, is through self-comparison. I might not have measured up to the par, but on Thursday, I played better than my dad. Just saying, you know, <laughs> just saying. I mean, I not, not, might not have been good, but I was better than him. So you know what? I felt really good about myself, right? Which is what the law does. It sets a standard that we're going to try to measure up to, but none of us can ever measure up to it. So it accentuates the need for a savior. I can never be good enough. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, all have sinned. We're all condemned. And the law just hammers that home. It doesn't save. It doesn't fix. It just makes it clear. I'm not the savior and I need one. And then once we accept Jesus, that Savior, this long-promised Savior, the remedy to that, the implications of that, is as Paul says, I'm no longer under a tutor. I don't need the tutor. It just told me I needed a Savior, but now that I have a Savior, I get it. I've already accepted him. I've moved beyond that. Now I'm abiding and I'm walking in faith. Not works. Not my merit, but his goodness, his grace. So he leaves us with this concept that we are as a result of being in Christ, accepting the Savior, being part of, of Abraham's seed, his family, this heritage of faith. He says we're heirs according to this promise. And that's the concept that he leaves us with that now as we turn to chapter four, he's gonna build upon. Now, as we noted last Sunday, because of our faith and the work of Jesus on the cross, we're not just spiritual descendants of Abraham, but we have been, you have been, I have been adopted by God. It's a glorious thing as sons and daughters of God, meaning I'm an heir according to the promise. And now Paul is going to expound on the implications of what being an heir has in my life. This incredible reality that because I'm a son, I'm an heir, and all that means. Also note that in the process of expounding upon the implications of what it means to be an heir, Paul is going to kind of illustrate the true silliness of those who have, who have been bought into grace, now returning against the law. Like seeking to earn God's approval when I've already been given it. Chapter four, verse one, now I say that the heir, continuing his thought, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is a master of all. But this child is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. Now, in order to unpack the essence of what Paul is communicating to these Galatian believers, we need to first define what Paul means when he uses this same word, child or children. In the Greek, the word, it means infant or little child. Now, keep in mind, Paul is writing to a group of Christians and he's using this imagery of a child in order to describe the state of their lives before salvation, before regeneration, before they accepted their savior. And he does this so he can then contrast that former existence with the moment they became sons. Now here's why this distinction is important. While the Bible clearly states that all people are God's creation, Colossians chapter one, verse 16, we're told that all things were created through him and for him. We are all the creation of God. We're also told in scripture, and scripture's clear, that God loves all people. 
We're all created by God, and God loves us all. Most famous verse in the world, like John 3, 16, for God so loved, what? The world, the world, all of the world. And yet, while the Bible's clear that we're all created by God and that God loves us, nowhere does Scripture then define or describe all human beings as children of God. You can say that you're created by God. You can say that God loves you. But nowhere does the Bible define everyone as a child of God. It's an unbiblical idea. Instead, the Bible makes the case that only those who are born again, only those who have accepted this Savior, only those who are regenerated through the Holy Spirit, place their faith, their full confidence in Jesus, are in actuality children of God. John chapter 1, verse 12. We're told, but to all who did receive him, speaking of Jesus, who believed or placed their full confidence in his name, he, Jesus, gave the right to become children of God. So nowhere does the Bible say everyone is a child of God, but only those who believe, who have placed their confidence in Jesus. The reality is, and this is, this is a difficult pill to swallow, that before regeneration, before Christ, before you've accepted Christ, while in our rebellion against God, we were all in actuality, not children of God, but instead children of the devil. Like John 8, verse 44, Jesus told the Pharisees that they belonged to their father, the devil. And 1 John chapter 3, verse 10, we're told this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not know what is right is not called a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. So John, he, he's, he's, he's creating this distinction. There are children of God, but there are also children of Satan. We're all created, God loves us all, but that particular designation is completely dependent upon you and what you do with Jesus. Whether or not you're an adopted son, therefore a child or not. Understand, Paul is retrospectively speaking of these Galatian believers in this passage as always being heirs of the promise, even though they had been at one point children of the devil because they had already accepted his adoption as sons. They had already accepted Jesus. Think about it like this. If you accept Jesus and are born again, we can speak of you as always being an heir, even though at one point you were a child of Satan. And yet, upon death, if you still reject Jesus and die in your sins, it becomes evident you were therefore never an heir and always a child of the devil. Like, it really doesn't have to get more complicated than that. If you're a real tweet that I'm calling you a child of the devil, understand, I'm telling you, you don't have to be a child of the devil. Just accept Jesus. Now you're a child of God. It doesn't get more complicated than that. Continuing. Paul states here, that while heirs, when these Galatians were children, they were in actuality slaves. How so? Because, Paul tells us, they were under guardians and stewards, then he says, in bondage under the elements of the world. Sure, while one day they would become masters. And this particular season, while a future master their life was defined in servitude and slavery, not liberty and freedom. The, the, the idea here of guardians and stewards 
presents uh, non-parental authorities responsible for the child in this particular Greek culture. Uh, the words guardian, it was a, a non-parental authority, a slave typically, charged in the life of a, of a child for their physical like, life, like their, their, their physical well-being. They were in charge of making sure they were safe, making sure that they were home on time, making sure they're sleeping right, eating right, etc. The word steward was a slave, a non-parental authority, who was charged in the life of a child of overseeing and making sure, safeguarding that child's role and position within the, the estate itself. Now, Paul says, as a child, these Galatians were in bondage, literally, made a slave of or given wholly over to serve the needs of another. This is what the idea of a bondage or, or slave uh, Im- implies. You were serving. Like there was nothing you could do about it. When you were a child, back in the day, before Christ liberated you, you were enslaved. To what? What were they in servitude to? He says, quote, the elements of the world. Now, when you unpack that particular phrase, it's a really interesting, fascinating phrase. But we, we have to ask what he means by it. Like, in its most simplistic definition, when you unpack the Greek, Paul is referring to, quote, the first thing from which all other things in this world belong. That's what he means when he says that you were in servitude, in bondage to the elements of the world. Like it it can be translated as first principles, the ABCs, or the material cause behind the spiritual world. And while we have today a greater understanding of what these first principles of our universe actually are through the advancements of quantum theory and atomic sciences. This takes advantage uh, of the essence of what Paul is communicating in context of writing about these things from a first century perspective. So in order to help unpack what he means, like we understand what the, the fundamental elements of the world are, but from Paul's perspective, what, what does he see culturally speaking, as these first elements to help us understand this and help, to help us uh, contextualize and define what we were enslaved to before we came to Christ. Look, look at Colossians 2, verses 8 through 10, because it provides a helpful frame of reference. In this passage, Paul, writing to believers uh, in another area, another church, Colossae, he says, he exhorts them, He tells them, be aware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles. Same word as uh, as the elements. So Paul's talking about the same thing. The elements of the world, same word as basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ, he continues, for in Christ dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Let's unpack that for just a moment. Paul warns these believers in Colossae against being deceived. Through what? Through, through the philosophy of the day, which he calls empty, but he says is based in, look, two things. The traditions of men and the basic principles of the world or these fundamental elements. Then, to point out the silliness of reverting back to these things, 
Paul says Jesus is, quote, the head of, or literally supreme to, all principalities and power, presumably driving this philosophical deceit. And it's in this that we're given an interesting clue. The word principality we find here in the Greek, it means beginning or origin. And it can refer to demons and angels. Like I'll give you an example of how it's used that way. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, Paul says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Like this, this life in Christ, it's not about the physical. It's instead about something deeper, something bigger, something larger, but against, he says, principalities, same word, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness and heavenly places. Like it would seem that by using this phrase, elements of the world, Paul is referencing these pagan gods that the Christians in Galatia were in bondage to before Paul came and preached to them Christ. Like, let me, let me give you a little bit more proof that that's what Paul's referring to. Look, Galatians 4, just a few verses ahead. Verses 8 and 9, this, this seems to fit. Paul says, but then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. But now, after you known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements? Same word that we've been looking at, to which you desire to be in bondage again. So when Paul says that you've been enslaved as children to these beggarly elements, these elements of the world, these first principles, that Paul is actually talking about these pagan gods that they were worshiping. If you recall, when Paul first came to the region of Galatia, he arrives, he's got Barnabas, his buddy, they come in, they're preaching the gospel, and what was the immediate reaction of the Galatians? The immediate reaction was that Paul and Barnabas had to have been Zeus and Hermes. The gods had sent representatives. This whole area was steeped in paganism. These false gods, this pantheon, Greek mythology, how it played out into Roman mythology. Understand, in classical culture, most held to the belief that spiritual forces controlled the physical universe. So if you're gonna talk about the first principles of the physical universe, to that mind, what are they? They're the spiritual forces behind them. For example, if you were a farmer, you made sacrifices to appease Apollo. Why? Because he's the sun god, and without the sun, your plants aren't gonna make it. If you were pregnant or trying to get pregnant, you went and made sacrifices to whom? Aphrodite, the fertility goddess. If you were a seaman, anytime you had the opportunity, anytime you ported, you went and appeased Poseidon, the god of the sea. You didn't want to upset the god of the sea if you spent your time on the sea. If you're trying to get rich, you made sacrifices to appease Plutus, the god of wealth. In its cultural context, by using this phrase, elements of the world, Paul is referring to their former pagan idolatry, and the bondage that came along with what? Their constant attempts to appease the gods. It was enslaving. 
you wanted a good crop, if you wanted to get pregnant, if you wanted God to bless you, you had to go and you had to make sacrifices, you had to worship, you had to do all of these things so that the gods would be like, yeah, we're cool. Because if we're not, I'm gonna destroy you. So it was completely based in this works or law-centered model. But, and this is what's interesting, by connecting this word principalities in Colossians to the idea of these elements, Paul is affirming something that is scary but important for us to understand. Because Paul is saying, you were enslaved to these beggarly elements, these pagan gods. But behind these pagan gods existed real spiritual forces. That in worshiping them and trying to appease them, gods who aren't gods, but that they are spiritual forces behind them. I hope you understand that there are real spiritual forces behind all of our idolatry that are seeking to enslave us, to keep us into servitude. Now, I'm not one of these people, and in case you don't know me, I just need to make it clear. That's like, the devil made me do it. Or, you know, exercise the demon. Like, I am not one of these type of people that, like, equates every problem you have to, like, some spiritual force. Like, you got the flu bug. I'm going to come in with some garlic and a big old cross. We're going to get that flu demon out of you. Like, like that's not me. I, I might come over with some mucinex because that's probably a little bit more apt. But, but I hope you understand what I'm saying. Like, I am not one of these... Like, if you're new here and you're like, what kind of church am I coming to? Because now we're talking about demons being behind idols. Yeah, we are, actually. And, and I'm not trying to make that weird, but I'm just trying to tell you the truth because that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying you worship these pagan gods. You are enslaved to them. And in that slavery, like, you were engaged in practices that were demonic, that were evil, that were in contrary to God. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 20, this is not me, this is Paul. He says, the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And, and, and I don't want you to have fellowship with demons. And that's my heart too. I'm just bringing it up because worshiping demons sounds like a drag. But there are real forces behind our idols. What Paul is communicating to his Galatian audience through the first five verses of Galatians 4 is that before Christ liberated them through his grace, they had been enslaved to this idea that you had to make a sacrifice to appease God. Look at verse 4. But, while you were enslaved to all of these things, but... I like the big butts of the Bible. You can play that however you want to. But when the, f <laughs> sorry, these things are not scripted and then they come into my head. And anyway, stick to the notes, Zach. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Paul is saying here, while you were enslaved to sin 
and held in bondage to this, these fruitless attempts to appease the gods. Whether you were a Greek appeasing the pantheon of Grecian gods or you were a Jew trying to appease Jehovah. Regardless, you were in sin, you were in bondage, and the law kept you in both. While you were in this, when all hope seemed lost, God initiated a plan. He had a, a plan of action, a remedy to this dynamic. Paul says, when the time appointed by the Father, or, and earlier, when the fullness of time had come, what happened? God sent forth his son. Now, this statement is very important. Like, there's some deep theology here that we're just going to kind of hit on the surface because we don't have time to unpack it all. But what, what this statement affirms is that Jesus first was sent by God. It just tells us God sent Jesus. It also affirms that Jesus was God. Like that's this phrase, his son. It, it means like to be the son of, according to the Greek lexicon and, and the way the Jews process, to be the son of something meant you were of the same nature as. So be the son of God, you are of the same nature as God. Thus when we're called sons of God, it means that the nature of God is within us. Jesus was sent by God and he was God and he had always been God. This is what Paul is saying. The fact that he sent forth meant that he existed before he was sent, that his eternal existence was very real before the incarnation. That coming, being born of Mary, placed, uh, you know, swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, like that wasn't the beginning of Jesus. He existed before that. We're also told here he's born of a woman. And this word born, it's interesting. It means a lot of things, but in this instance, that Jesus, quote, received his being of a woman. Now that's important, for it explains how Jesus was able to take on human flesh without assuming the sin nature given all humanity through Adam. He didn't have the seed of Adam. It was the seed of God. It was the seed of the woman. He gained his flesh through Eve, but his nature was given by God. Genesis 3.15, God promised that, that this Savior would come through the seed of the woman, which spoke of a virgin birth. Though human, what Paul is saying here, and sent by God, Jesus' nature remained divine. We're also told he's born under the law, or literally Jesus came to be made under the law. This means that Jesus, who he was, was validated, and what he came to do, what he came to accomplish, his core mission was substantiated by what? It's interesting, the law. Like the law stamped its approval on Jesus so that he could end the law. Like he's the only one that could do it. The law authenticated Jesus's divine nature. How? Because Jesus was able to live and fulfill the law. He was sinless. This standard, I got it, which means he never fell short of the glory of God. Thus the law was like Jesus, boom, you can be the savior because your death won't pay for your sin because the law has demanded and called you sinless. So Jesus sent of God as God, who had always been God, taking on his humanity from the woman. Thus he didn't assume the sin nature provided in Adam, validated by the law that he was sinless. See how this is all packed together. And this is part of the plan of saving you from your bondage and your sin as you've been held captive by demonic forces. Now, for what purpose had Jesus been sent? Look at verse five. 
All these things happen to redeem those who are under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. Now understand, the entire reason Jesus came to earth was the redemption of humanity. And once again, this word redeem, we mentioned it last Sunday, I'll just reiterate it. In Greek and Roman culture, it was a unique word because it spoke of a very particular transaction that would occur on the slave market. Like just because you went to the market, purchased a slave, didn't guarantee that the transaction occurred to set the slave free. Like you, slaves were bought and sold all the time. That's not what redemption is. Like I bought a, a slave, thus I've redeemed the slave. No, 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 no. Like it was normal to purchase a slave in order for them to work in your house, be your slave, or to pay off a debt they owed. This word redeem, it indicates that you purchased a slave off the market, not to work for you, not to pay off a debt, but simply to set them free. You bought them, you paid whatever was demanded, you unshackled them, and you said you can go. Wherever you want to, you're free. You don't have to work for me, you don't have to pay it off. There's no debt. Like you, like it's, it's, you are completely 100% free. Paul is making it clear, and this word is so powerful, is that Jesus redeemed you for what purpose? For freedom. With no strings attached. That's what Paul is communicating. Like Jesus didn't liberate you. And I hope you understand this this morning. Jesus did not die on the cross to save you from your sins, to liberate you in order so that you could be in subjugation to his servitude. That is not why Jesus set you free so you could be a slave in return. Jesus didn't set you free under the pretense that you would have to spend the rest of your life paying it back or paying it forward. Jesus freed you from the bondage of this world that you, Paul says it, might be free, that you might receive what was promised, the adoption as sons of God. In this passage, Paul is describing two incredible works provided by Jesus that are central to making us heirs of the promise. First, we're redeemed and that we've been purchased out of slavery. A debt we couldn't pay was satisfied by Jesus' death. We have been freed from slavery, set free, so that what? We can accept the adoption of God. You're free from sin, you're free from bondage, but in addition, dude, here's the certificate. You're now my son and heirs of the promise. You are a member of my family. Continue, verse six. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. You, you get the passion coming out of what Paul is trying to communicate. And what he's saying in these verses is rather remarkable. Because you are a son or a daughter, and that you've been redeemed and adopted, Paul says you are no longer a slave, but a son and an heir of God. This means, and understand this, positionally speaking, so many people don't get it, you're standing before God, upon redemption and adoption is 100% complete. 
Like Paul, Paul's point and context to these Galatians falling into the trappings of legalism by reverting to this anti-gospel of grace and you got to do these things or grace, but you shouldn't do these things is to illustrate just the stupidity of that endeavor. If we're a son and we're free and we're an heir, trying to earn something is ridiculous. That's Paul's statement here. And if you've been made a son of God through his grace, how is it that you could possibly think moralistic efforts of the law could increase or add to that standing? Like because of your redemption through Jesus and your adoption by God extended through grace alone and not your merit, you're standing this morning before God is the exact same as Jesus. Like working to add favor, how can you add any more favor than the favor Jesus has? Like that's what Paul's saying. He's saying you can't be more pleasing to God than Jesus and you're as pleasing to God as Jesus. You can't add to it. You can't take it away. How really foolish is it to then think that somehow your standing in heaven could eclipse that of Christ? that there's something you could do to cause the father to love you more than he loves his son. I love you. I don't love you as much as I love Quincy or Theodore, my sons. And yet God loves you as much as he loves Jesus. You can't cause him to love you more than that. That's Paul's whole point here. You can't do anything. And I hope you understand this because it's so free and it's so liberating. There's nothing you could do to cause God to love you more or less than he already does right now. Like how can you seek to have a better standing with God than the standing that Jesus has? Grace has made you a son. And yet, while glorious a reality, our position in heaven is through Jesus Christ, Paul doesn't stop there. Look, he says, because you are sons and that you've been redeemed and adopted, he continues, God has sent forth his spirit, the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Like first, Paul explains in a very practical way the mechanism by which you and I become sons of God. In Romans 8, verse 15, Paul refers to this as the spirit of adoption. Understand, you become a son or a daughter of God through the indwelling spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. The only reason you're given this standing in heaven as an heir and this new identity as a child of God is that in your adoption, the spirit of Jesus was sent into your heart. Now consider this, like like what Paul's saying here. Paul is saying at the very center of your redemption and adoption rests this idea that God gave up his own son, Jesus. So to redeem you, God sent Jesus to die. God the Father allowed his own son to die a brutal death with one point so that he could redeem you because the price you owed had been satisfied and then adopt you as his children. Then... God sent forth the spirit of his son into your heart so that when you, quote, cry out, Abba, Father, check it out, whose voice does God hear? Understand, he hears not your voice, 
but the voice of Jesus, his only begotten son speaking through you. Like, let the implications of that settle in. When you cry out to God, you know who God hears? He hears his son. He hears Jesus. So God wanted to redeem you and adopt you, so he sent his son to die. And he's like, you're now my children. And then when you open your mouth, whose voice does he hear coming out of you? The son that he sent. He hears Jesus. He hears Christ. Like in using this phrase, Abba, Father, there's no doubt that Paul is referring to a very powerful moment in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus prayed just moments before his, his arrest and his trial and his execution. He said, Mark 14, verse 36, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. This word Abba, it's an Aramaic word. It's not Greek, it's not Hebrew, it's Aramaic, and it's the word for papa or daddy. It's, a, it's an endearing word. Like it, it's been said, one scholar said, that Abba was a word you could say without teeth, meaning an infant or a really old guy could use the word. That it didn't matter where you were in your spiritual life, that you could utter the word Abba, that it's a sound of endearment. Like, you know, it's ironic. The Orthodox Jews, these Jews steeped in the law, they would not say the, the name God. The word God would not roll off their lip. They wouldn't even write it so that it could then be stated. And yet, you and I in grace, not only are we allowed to say the word of God, but we're able to refer to God with a term of endearment. Though the law indeed creates a healthy fear of God, It's grace that enables an intimacy with God. You will never have intimacy with God if you're trying to earn God's favor. Intimacy cannot come throughout any other mechanism but grace. What an incredible privilege we've been afforded as children of God and that we've been given the spirit of his son Jesus so that as Jesus We can call him daddy. So follow Paul's logic. You were once a child, enslaved by the elementary principles of this world until God intervened. By sending his son to redeem you, to set you free, that you should not only be a son, but an heir. And then to be be a son, he sent his spirit to fill your heart. Your position in heaven, your favor and access to God This very moment, friend, is the same as Jesus. And how did all of that occur? As a mechanism of his grace and his demonstrated favor and not your efforts or you proving you're worthy of it. This is Paul's entire flow. It's the argument he's making. Paul is seeking now to illustrate to these Galatians what legalism and the life of a believer really is. Seeking to earn God's approval is akin to a son laying aside that position, foregoing that inheritance as an heir and going back to being a slave. But it's worse than that. Verse eight, but then indeed, when you did not know God, restating this position as children, you serve those which by nature are not gods. They're false gods. 
But now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, when you've become an heir according to the promise as adopted sons, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements, these spiritual forces, right, behind the physical elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? Like, do you really want that difficulty, that life of always seeking to measure up, of always seeking to appease God through your works? Then Paul says, and look at it, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. Now that is intense. Do you understand what Paul just said? Like this reference to observing days and months and seasons and years was all about this legalistic position that required Gentile Christians to observe Jewish feasts. That's what Paul's referencing here. But note, and placing these things in context to the weak and beggarly elements, Paul is equating the act of a son reverting back to being a slave and bondage to appease God through religion. He's equating Judaism to being on par with demon worship. That's what he's doing here. Basically, Paul is saying, that when you do anything to earn God's approval or favor, you're not worshiping God. You're not relating to God, but instead you're honoring and placing yourself in the bondage of dark spiritual forces. It's crazy. But Paul, is, he, he sees the pagan practices of self-mutilation, temple prostitution, even human sacrifice on par with any aspect of religion that seeks to justify a person before God apart from grace. He even goes so far as to say, kind of to wrap up his thought, I'm afraid for you. Like there was a fear that Paul had for these people saying, lest I, I have labored in vain. Now let's make this personal. Like one of the reasons ministry in the Bible Belt is so difficult is that most everyone thinks they know God when few actually do. You might know of God, but, but, but do you know God? Like sadly, almost every aspect of our Christian experience, legalism, is so twisted that according to Paul, so much of the church is actually pagan. Let me give you a very easy example. And I don't mean to punch you in the face this morning, but I'm going to punch you in the face, but I'm, I'm just kind of giving you a heads up, right? So I, I hope that that's good. Like, like, it's one thing to get cold cocked without knowing it's coming. It's, it's another thing to be like, I'm just going to let you know in advance, this is not going to feel good, but I'm going to do it anyway. Did you wake up this morning and come to church freely? Or did you come this morning begrudgingly out of some warped sense of religious obligation or pressure? Did you come to church out of a joy to worship God, to study his word, to connect with other people that are part of the same family, his family? A desire, by the way, that manifests naturally out of God's amazing grace? Or did you come to church this morning because you felt like you had to? Which explains why you're counting the minutes before you can leave. Now, now don't get me wrong. 
Going to church is important. But understand, if you're here this morning thinking your attendance makes you right with God or in some ways scores you brownie points in heaven, you're not only mistaken because it doesn't, you're actually placing yourself in bondage to the law. Works-based approval. The law demands what I must do when grace frees me from this burden. I get to do it. Like Paul's making it clear that if you're engaging in any aspect of Christian life, what are those things? Going to church, Bible study, evangelism or missions, witnessing, service. You, you never think that teaching Sunday school is demon worship, but if you do anything, giving, or obeying the Sabbath, or Lent, or worship, out of a desire to earn God's pleasure, or at a minimum, maintain God's pleasure, as opposed to these things being a response of his pleasure, you, as someone who's a son of God, you, as an heir of the promise, are re-enslaving yourself and worshiping demons. That's what Paul says. Like, it deserves repeating. Jesus redeemed you for freedom with no strings attached. He didn't liberate you in order to subjugate you in his servitude. He didn't set you free under the pretense you have to pay him back. Jesus freed you from the bondage of this world, quote, that you might receive a promised savior and become adopted as sons of God. Your position, friend, in heaven as an heir, your favor by his spirit and access to God as a son is the exact same as Jesus Christ. And why? Because of grace and not your efforts. And this reality, if you can accept it, if you can wrap your brain around it, it's incredibly freeing. Because what it tells me is this. It tells me that I can have something that is totally foreign in this world. And that is unconditional love. The world promises, but it doesn't exist. It says, this is what I'll offer, but it's never full. You see, if it's grace, period, that means God's love for me is unchanging, is not based on conditions. And man, that is something to be enjoyed. Because there is nothing you can do to cause Jesus to love you more because there's nothing you can do to cause Jesus to love you less. That sets you free so that you can simply enjoy Jesus. A relationship with Jesus.